Well, friends, uh, I invite you to open up your worship guides or your Bibles. Uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 18 um, this morning. And so we are, uh, this is actually the, the season of Lent. And so what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks uh, leading up into the week of Easter, we're going to be looking at the, the passion of, of Christ uh, from John's gospel. These are the events that are leading up to his crucifixion. And uh, this is just a very beautiful um, series of chapters where we see God's heart for each and every single one of us on display for us. And uh, this is a particular passage today that as we look at John 18, this is a passage where Jesus is not passive. He's not a bystander. He's actually the primary one who's actively engaged. It's a, there's this shocking twist um, that from what you may expect. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word, these words that God has given to each and every single one of us in love for you. So John 18, beginning with verse 1, and we'll read from 1 through 14, then jump to 19 through 24. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of these whom you, have, whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and, stuck, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malthus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father of in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And jumping forward to verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have already spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to him. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what... But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then, bound, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. 
And here we see your son mistreated, betrayed, arrested, struck, and bound. We pray that you administer to us through your word and your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. There are people in the world today that elicit a very strong reaction. And it tends to coincide with where you are from. For example, if you are from Pittsburgh, the name Sidney Crosby is a, a, one of your favorite, favorite people. But if you're from Philadelphia, he is not your favorite person. Or same thing, if you are from Cleveland, the name LeBron James could either be a, wor- a, a person of heros- like adoration or disgust. Why would he leave Cleveland for Miami? Every single place has these types of reactions. But Jesus of Nazareth, on the other hand, takes that adoration or that ridicule, that praise or disgust to a brand new level. That for the person of Jesus of Nazareth, you either want to worship him and follow him, or you want to betray and kill him. No other person in human history has that stark, strong reaction that lasts for 2,000 years after he was crucified and defeated death. Jesus is unique in human history. That Jesus did is really the entire pivot point, the climax of human history. And so as we look at this passage today, our, like where we see the beginning of the passion for us, as we begin to see this passion, and this is going to include like the last 24 hours of Jesus's life, we see Jesus being betrayed by a friend, by someone who was a disciple of him, of his, where this friend, Judas, betrayed him and, and handed him over to the people who wanted to kill him. And he endures a rigged trial here. We see Jesus enduring some misery and humiliation here. But John is actually the author of this gospel. So John, um, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John wants our attention to be on a certain question here that's actually repeated twice. This is a question that's actually mentioned uh, a third time in John chapter 20, it's mentioned, Jesus mentions it to Mary Magdalene. But this is the question of whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? This is the question that John has for you this morning. And But this question inevitably raises another question. Why are you seeking Jesus of Nazareth? Are you coming here this morning to really betray him, to ridicule him, to mock him? Or are you coming this morning to worship him? And so this is really the, the idea that we're looking at and exploring this morning. So let's first consider the betrayal, Judas's betrayal of, G, of Jesus. So just to share a little bit about Judas first, that Judas was one of Jesus' disciples, that since Jesus actually visited this same garden that he is at uh, this evening with his disciples in the past, Judas was familiar with it, that Judas would, knew that Jesus would go there. And so Judas gathers Roman soldiers. He gathers officers from the high priest and religious leaders. And then he, here he is as a former disciple of, of Jesus. So in this one verse, we have a picture of Jews and Gentiles and even former disciples of Jesus 
coming to Jesus in order to betray him and kill him. All of, all of them are actually conspiring against Jesus in order to kill him. But why would Judas do this? Why? Think about everything that Judas has witnessed in his entire life over the past three years. That Judas has seen Jesus do miraculous things. That Judas saw Jesus do the impossible, even. That, consider some of these miracles. These are all from John's Gospel, where, where Jesus takes water and he turns it into wine. Judas saw that. That Judas saw a blind, blind man be have his sight restored to him. That Judas saw lamed cripples, people who could not walk since their birth, walk again. But then even in John 11, Judas sees Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Judas saw Jesus do the impossible. Why in the world would he betray him? The, the, like the, this passage, like Judas's mind, like Judas's actions don't really seem rational in a sense. Because, like, just imagine if you witnessed a, a resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. That, like, you may think that even if you were there, you would you would follow Jesus. Judas actually shows us that if you were there, you may actually may have, end up betraying him. So Judas is betraying Jesus, but why? Well, if you, again, let's go back to that Lazarus passage. At the end of Lazarus, we see the Jews from that moment beginning to conspire to kill him. That's John 11. And then we get to John 12, and I'll read a few verses from John 12. But just to point something else out to you, the next chapter is John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And that is the last night that Jesus shares with his disciples. And so even in, in the logic of John's gospel, John 11 and into verse t- in chapter 12 is like the turning point where all of a sudden people are conspiring to kill him. But here's John 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. This gives us a picture into Judas' heart so that we can actually understand why Judas is betraying Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, and this is to Mary, Lazarus's sister. Why was this an ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself what was put into it. So here we have this incredible picture that Jesus in John 11 raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a dear friend of his. His two sisters are Mary and Martha. Um, again, friends. But he frequented their house. And in Luke, we see Jesus actually at their house and he's teaching. And so in the next chapter, in John chapter 12, after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, Mary takes this precious ointment and breaks it and, and anoints Jesus with it. But that ointment, that perfume cost 300 denarii. To put that in perspective, that's 300 days wages. So this was a very expensive thing. And here's Judas saying, why didn't you sell that and give that to the poor? But we see that's not the real heart motivation. He actually wanted that money for himself. So Judas was not following Jesus because he loved Jesus. That's a big deal. Instead, Judas is following Jesus in order to get rich. 
Judas is following Jesus in order to get rich, and he betrayed him. This is clearly seen in his act of betrayal because Judas betrayed Jesus for what? For money, for 30 pieces of silver. And so what Judas learned, and he realized this, is that, and it's pretty much as soon as he learned that the way of Jesus does not lead to health or wealth, he's going to betray him. So like in our contemporary cultural moment, like this, that idea that following Jesus leads to health and wealth, that's the prosperity gospel. But no, the way of Jesus actually leads to something completely different. And Judas had this wake-up call. He woke up to the reality that following Jesus is not going to get him rich. Following Jesus is not going to get him the life that he wants. No. That even though Jesus could could raise a man from the dead, that Jesus had no interest whatsoever in making Judas wealthy. That Jesus had no interest in making Judas wealthy or even healthy. Jesus was not going to overthrow Rome. He was not going to become the political leader of Israel. So that if you were one of his disciples, you were not going to get one of these privileged, esteemed positions. So so if you had political aspirations, you would not follow Jesus whatsoever. And that's all because the, the place where Jesus is going, the way of Jesus is actually the cross. That is where Jesus is going. And that is actually something Jesus has always said, that he told his disciples to pick up your cross and follow me. That this is the idea that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, that when Jesus calls a person to follow him, he bids you to come and die. And so Jesus is going to the cross, and so and Judas actually has a part here. As he's betraying Jesus, he is helping Jesus go to the cross as well. Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be spat upon and insulted. Some of these by strangers and and people who would would consider him to be their enemy. But this is even from a friend. Jesus knows what it's like. And this is, uh, there's some irony, irony going on here that John is offering us some examples of irony here in this passage, and I just want to point them out to you. And so think about the way that John opened up the gospel, this particular gospel. In verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, we read about the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so that the world is in darkness, but what do these people here who are the entire world who's conspiring against Jesus, what do they use to come find the light of the world? They come with torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so there's some irony here that that these people who are in complete spiritual blindness and darkness cannot find the light of the world without these these things. And so Judas, despite following Jesus for all these years and seeing all these miracles and these incredible healings that he's done, Judas never loved Jesus. Nor did he allow Jesus to renovate and change his heart. This is a question for each and every single one of you this morning. Are you letting Jesus renovate your heart? Are you letting Jesus change your heart? Or are you hardening your heart towards him?
That's a question that this passage raises for each and every single one of us. And so while Judas leads the world to come and kill Jesus, they're actually not the ones who find Jesus. Jesus is actually the one who comes forward to them and asks them the question, who are you, who are you looking for? So Jesus essentially volunteers himself. He steps forward. He comes to them. They don't know who he is. He asks them of this question twice. Who is it that you are looking for? And so as he steps forward and he comes forward before them, we should see that he is the one who is in control here. He is the one who is in power here. Even while Jesus is facing certain death, and suffering right in the face as he is being betrayed, he is the one in control. And there's a play on words here that's going on. And Judas comes and seeks to hand Jesus over to the Jews. But think about John 8, 10, John chapter 10, verse 18. And this is the passage where Jesus declares, I'm the good shepherd. He says about himself as the good shepherd, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So Jesus is just surrendering himself into the hands of the world here upon the condition that his disciples would be released, that they would not be harmed. And so there's a, so there's a, and the next part of this passage gets into this idea of the man behind the curtain, the man behind the curtain. And we see this at play for us in 12 to 14 and 19 through 24. And so the man behind the curtain, as we begin to see that these met, is Annas. Annas was the chief priest of Israel. He actually was not the chief priest at the time of Jesus' arrest and betrayal. Annas was the chief priest from 6 to 15 AD. So depending on some certain events, it could be like 16, 18 years earlier than this passage of Jesus being arrested. And so we see that he is actually removed. He's, he's forcibly removed from his religious office by the Romans and yet, despite not being the chief priest, he's actually the power broker. He is the man behind the curtain. Each one of his five sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, were all high priests of Israel until Jerusalem was overthrown in 70 AD. So he's the man behind the curtain. But we also see that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is introduced for it. He's mentioned here. But he's introduced earlier in John 11, 47 to 53. You're hearing John 11 a lot this morning. That's, again, the passage when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Immediately after that, we are introduced to Caiaphas. And this is what Caiaphas said, that this is where we see that the, the religious leaders are beginning to conspire against Jesus. And because they know that if Jesus could raise people from the dead, then there would be a mass group of people coming to be Jesus' disciples. And if that would happen, then certainly Rome would come and remove them and, and from power, and, but also punish Israel. And this is, that was the context for Caiaphas saying this, Is it not better for one man to die instead of a whole, a whole nation? That's Caiaphas. But talk about cynical political realism. It's better that he would die instead of any of us or all of us. And so while Annas is actually the man behind the curtain and pulling the strings of this rigged kangaroo trial, Jesus is actually flipping the script once again for us. That just as Judas leads the world to come to Jesus and arrest him and betray him and so forth, Jesus comes is the one who surrenders and is the one in power. But in here, in, in Jesus' own trial, 
He's not an, the bystander. He's not the passive bystander. He's not even the victim. He's actually the one who's fully in control. Annas is asking him these questions. And as you get into verses 19 through 24, and that's actually Jesus still being interrogated by Caiaphas, excuse me, by Annas. He's not even sent to Caiaphas yet. But we see that the high priest is questioning Jesus about his disciples and everything that he taught. But Jesus actually points out the shame of this secret investigation of this rigged kangaroo trial. Because what Jesus says is that all this time I have spoken publicly in these public places. And yet, why have you never asked me these, these questions in public ways? Or if you have questions about my teaching, why don't you ask any of the people who were, who were there? And so, like, Jesus is actually the one who's turning around and interrogating the high priest. He's like, this is what you're doing? You're, you're mistreating me here. And so there's a few, there's two things to point out here about Jesus' answer. That first, like everything that Jesus taught was public. Even while Jesus would teach his disciples and his friends in not private, but more intimate and personal gatherings, everything that Jesus taught is actually for you. Everything that Jesus taught is public. None of it is meant to be kept secret. It's actually for each and every single one of us. And that's not just for us, but for the world. That's a very beautiful thing just to take encouragement from. But the second thing to point out is that perhaps you may be wondering that here's Jesus who is on trial and he's being asked questions about his disciples and he's being asked questions about his teaching. But Jesus is not actually answering those questions. He's asked, answering those questions with himself. And here we see this incredible thing that the that all of these three things, the disciples and his teaching and the person of Christ, are all found together. That our identity as Jesus' disciples is actually in the person of Jesus Christ. His, the sum of Jesus' teaching is actually found in Jesus. That Jesus is actually the center of our entire faith together. And so as we go back to this interrogation, that at that, like as he basically starts to interrogate the, the high priest, Jesus is struck on the face. Who is he to speak to the high priest this way? Can you just think about that for a moment? Who is Jesus to speak to the high priest this way? That within the entire Israelite system, the priests were the one who would represent God to the people and the people to God. And like, if you put it on an organizational chart, the entire point is that priests are meant to actually point people to Jesus. So who is he to speak to the priest this way? He's the creator. He's, he's, our, he's our God. He's the one for whom our souls long. And so the soldier is actually recognizing that the man on trial, being Jesus, just put the, the high priest on trial. And Jesus is the one who here in power and in control, the godfather of the high priests, Annas is not. But why? Why is Jesus in power and control? Why is this such a big deal? Well, if Jesus is truly into, in control, like, and we see this throughout the Gospels, like, think about Satan in Luke 4 or Matthew 4. Like, that, that's where Jesus is tempted, where Jesus, uh, this, Jesus faced trials in the desert. 
Think about when Jesus is on the cross. He fa- like the crowd around him would mock him. If this truly is the Son of God, then why doesn't he come down from the cross? If he really is the Son of God, then ask for your angels, the hosts of heaven, to come and rescue you. Like Jesus didn't do those things. Jesus didn't give in to those temptations, but to what end? The reason why Jesus endures this betrayal of a friend and this slander and this rigged kangaroo trial, the reason why Jesus endured these insults, this physical violence and injustice, the reason why Jesus endured all these things and much more is out of love for you. Jesus endured the misery of sin in life and in death out of love for you. So to actually flip the passage once more, as the world is actually coming looking for Jesus in the dark, the, the spiritual darkness is coming to look for Jesus and to kill him. The reality is that Jesus is the one who's looking for you. That the light of the world came into this world of darkness in order so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. That in our sin, that we are lost. We are lost in our sin. We are alienated from God. But Jesus is the one who is coming, looking for each and every single one of you, seeking to reconcile you to God. That we are actually the mob who is coming to Jesus with lanterns and torches. We are the ones who actually will pull out our swords and fight others, not for Jesus' glory, but for our own goals and values. Because we are threatened by Jesus. Because our goals, our values, are we recognize that our goals and our values are actually not the same as Jesus is. But nonetheless, the reality is that you are the reason why Jesus came. Because he freely loves each and every single one of you. It's because of his grace that he comes looking for you. So Jesus is looking for you. But ask yourself this question that John's asking you. Are you looking for him? And are you, why are you looking for Jesus? Let's pray.